Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hi Rob, thank you so much for coming on. Hello Haida, you're welcome. Well, um, the first time we met was in Moorfields, and I was sort of sitting by the sort of speaker's um, uh, side, you know, with all the uh, chairs and so on, and I felt I felt a bit out of place, really. Um because I introduced you as, you know, professor of organizational psychology. And I thought, wow, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of respect in that, you know, cognitively anyway. Hmm. And then, you know, as you were giving your talk, you were sort of giving us all the poo poo about cognitive biases. <laughs> you, you lost all respect. <laughs> and I thought, oh, dear, it's like, well. I'm just going to come up there and sort of bullshit my way through my talk. I mean, you know, I did confess at the start of my talk that, you know, um, and I was referring to you specifically that, you mm. know, this, this is all a lot of bullshit I'm going to speak now because I felt a bit, yeah, a bit, a bit of a fraud, really. Well, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all from time yeah. to time? So, so, so what, what got you interested in, you know, in this whole mishmash of of uh, cognition and and uh, cognitive biases and and you know real science and unreal science? Yeah, so I wasn't. I only got interested. I mean, obviously, as a psychologist, uh, you learn about cognitive biases just in a normal course of doing a degree or a master's degree or whatever. But I only got really interested in. The idea of cognitive biases, which are now I think isn't quite the right term, because biases sounds like there is a proper way for your cognition to do stuff. And I just think it's part and parcel of, of cognition. So it's not a bias, it's just a, a way of we, we do cognition. But I got interested, I suppose, particularly because I, I was quite, um, and still am, quite puzzled about why it is that when we're all making decisions, looking at information, looking at data, for example, we tend to look for information that supports our pre-existing views. So confirmation bias, and this happens in everyday life, it happens in the boardroom, it happens in lots of kinds of situations. So I think my interest in cognitive biases was really just to help me understand some of the ways in which we perhaps selectively use and interpret data and information around us to suit whatever other agenda or purpose we have. So I'm not, I'm certainly an expert on cognitive biases, but I think it's important part of the way in which we need to think about i think we need to think about how we go about using data and information because broadly speaking i guess my view is you know from policy makers to governments to police officers to managers to organizational psychologists perhaps to physicians you know it's an obvious thing to say but we don't perhaps make the optimal use of the data and information that we could to i guess maximize the, you know the the outcomes we're trying to get so i got i'm interested in it, i guess because of that really yeah yeah and 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 what got you interested in psychology per se 
I don't know, because my first degree actually was in philosophy and psychology, so did a joint honours degree. And I think, I don't know, I think they kind of, as two subjects, they kind of go together quite well. Um, I think one reason I got into the philosophy bit is doing my A-levels. Uh, I remember my sociology, a long time ago, now, my sociology teacher saying, look, this essay is okay, but I can't give it a very good mark because all you've done in six pages is pick apart the question. You just told me what's wrong with the question. You haven't answered it. So she actually said, maybe you should think about philosophy. And I guess I was interested in psychology. I think I've always just been quite interested in, in human behavior. I think it's one of those things that, you know, I guess a few people say is they, they discover there is a subject called psychology that is about human behavior. On the other hand, I think like lots of people, when they start studying psychology, it's very kind of neuroscience. It's very cognitive. It's very brain. And I'm not interested in the brain as such. I'm interested in the way people behave. So a lot of psychology degrees, as I'm sure you or your listeners know, are very much focused on the way the brain works, which is really important. But I was more interested, I guess, in the kind of social psychology and in fact, organizational work psychology. So I was more interested in those kinds of forms of behavior, I guess. And 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 who in your earlier years were you influenced in terms of philosophy? Wow, that's a very good question, and I wish I had a good answer for it. Uh, and I don't. And in fact, what one of the things, maybe it was the way I was taught it or studied it. One of the things that I suppose quite surprised me is I was coming at it, I guess, from quite a linguistic point of view, like picking apart these questions. It's just there were so many different approaches and schools and ways of doing philosophy that actually uh, are often completely well not complementary and quite kind of conflictual uh, the way you think about the way you think and the way you think about how you analyze problems so i don't i don't, don't have a single or even particular kind of school of influence i think I, my memory is just being quite uh, surprised about the variety of different ways of approaching philosophy i guess but 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 nothing attracted you the most to a to a particular way of thinking and a and a particular way of uh, formalizing yeah. problems rather than problem solving. I don't think so. No, no, I, no, I think I think even from quite early on, I quite liked the idea that there were multiple ways of approaching a particular problem, and I didn't have a. I don't think I had a kind of favorite as such. And and in in terms of sort of. The social aspect what, what was there a, a particular political leaning that that uh, you had at the time yeah yeah so certainly i guess i guess uh probably you know kind of average student left-wing quasi mm. <laughs> not trotskyist but you know a lot of my friends were involved in kind of left-wing politics or labor politics which then was a bit more left i suppose i was quite interested in yeah, Marxism a little bit and that kind of dialectic material a little bit. I knew very little about it, certainly compared to some of my friends, but probably broadly, I guess, left for want of a better descriptor. So a bit sort of left, but very sceptical about it at the same time. Kind of. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then, you you know, you realised that you were good at breaking things down linguistically, so to speak, and that there are some um there's some utility in that yeah and also i think that and sometimes to keep interest in human behavior i think there is some utility in, in it uh but then sometimes you also need data yeah. and that's where i guess science psychology doing studies looking at data that's where that comes in as well so for me you need both and, it, and it's a fairly i guess a well-worn uh 
kind of debate. I'm not, what is it? Well, I'm not sure. But the idea that you can approach things pretty uh, philosophically and theoretically and think about explanation and understanding, or you can just look at data, a kind of dust bowl empiricist approach. And I think my feeling is certainly in the fields in which I've done research and the fields of which I'm aware, that that kind of empirical uh, and quite uncritical way of doing science tended to dominate. So it's kind of getting more and more facts for the sake of fact gathering rather than saying, is this actually enhancing our understanding, which is more where I guess theory comes in. So I suppose I've tried not very successfully to tread a line between those two things and still do. Uh, and I think the, the idea of explanation theory and understanding and what things mean is still very important as well as sort of data and what that might mean and how those two things go together. And and wh wh when did you take the kind of step from philosophy to, you know, the empirical side of psychology? What it was, was probably, the... it, yeah, it's probably a bit undergraduate, but more uh, postgraduate. Uh, so I did a master's by uh, sort of by research, sorry, by, by <coughs> excuse me, by the theoretical dissertation about someone called Hans Selye, you may or may not have heard of, who was described as the godfather of stress. So physiological stress. And he was very, very popular in the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s. He wrote lots of books. And as a psychology undergraduate, I became, I was quite interested in stress. And of course, because of the philosophy of it, I kept saying, what does stress mean? What does actually stress mean? What is this, as Sede defined, this non-specific response to the body to any demand? He had this really clear definition. I sort of started delving into his ideas. And what surprised me was that actually, although his ideas are very popular, they're in every psychology book you ever would pick up about sort of human behavior and every kind of book about the influence of psychological facts on health, stress was often mentioned. And what amazed me is that it was very poorly defined. Uh, and actually, the theory was pretty much untested, but it remained quite popular. So I got quite interested in my master's, not in collecting new data, but in existing data, tracking the link between the historical link between stress, psychological stress, whatever that means, and physical health, the link between those two things. And what I think I found out through looking at that was certainly at the time, the link between those two things is not as strong and is not as uh, widespread as was popularly believed and kind of still is in a way. It depends on the culture you're in, but the idea that psychological stress or anxiety, whatever you choose to define or measure it, is intimately linked with physical illness is it, still quite a sort of strong idea. And there probably are circumstances in which it is, but it's it's complicated. It's not as obvious as certainly we're going back to the 80s and 90s, then where people were kind of arguing. So you have things like, you may remember things like the life events inventory. Yeah. So you measure people's life events, a divorce, moving house, and you try and correlate this with various kinds of physical illness or cardiovascular heart disease. And you know, my understanding is it turns out there's actually not much of a link at all, although that idea is very, very popular. So I got interested in that. And then I think for my, I guess the next thing was a PhD. And that's really when I got interested in collecting data as such. And I did a lot of diary studies, mostly quantitative, looking at the links between uh, the work people did every day and the way they, what they did every day and their mood at the end of the day to try and look for links between those two things. And this shows how long ago it was, uh, in particular, looking at the use of PCs or computers in offices and the effect of that. Because again, around that time, there was quite a lot of uh, concern about the impact of using PCs and computers on people's sort of psychological and physical health. So some was the ergonomic stuff 
there's also a lot of valuable people now looking at these screens um, they're kind of processing information differently they're working differently surely this could have quite a negative impact on people's well-being health and so on so that that was sort of what i looked at but i guess my main interest was always about daily moods and emotions yeah yeah i mean um it seems to me that sort of it's 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 getting more complex rather than sort of simpler and and, and before because there was less i guess variables it was a bit easier to pick these um, variations in sort of uh, correlations uh, easier. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, it's... well, yes, I think so. so. There's more almost like people physically, for example, go to an office and they sit there for a very regimented number of hours a day and there isn't maybe much variation in other things. And yes, it's, it's, there's fewer things interacting, I guess. Yes, and I think now it just reminds me of, um, I'm going to speak at a conference in a few few months and it's about kind of work psychology and the, the theme of the conference is that the whole lockdown and remote working has been this huge natural experiment i keep mm. thinking it's not an experiment because to your point it's totally uncontrolled so yes look more people working from home but some people working in you know nice big homes in a lovely office with french windows with mm. other people cramped in a small house with lots of noise of a resource so it's not really much of an experiment yes it changed things for people that's not kind of the same thing so i think yes in that sense maybe there's more stuff going on it's harder to assess some of this stuff yeah yeah i mean i guess it indicates the you know the great complexity of our system you know our internal system and the way it sort of deals with all different uh variables on a on a continuous basis and can we capture that in in science in yeah. inverted commas you know it's a difficult one i think it's very difficult one of the it's one of the reasons why i got interested still i'm interested in using sort of diary methods and when i did it was paper and pencil we're using kind of electronic uh, mobile phones or those kind of devices to sort of monitor everyday changing fluctuations in people's thoughts and feelings and behaviors because one thing that Certainly, again, broadly speaking, in my field, organisational psychology and human resource management and other management research, people tend to use surveys or, you know, questionnaires. They ask people in general what they think about their line managers. They ask people in general what they think about the resources they've got. They ask people in general this stuff. And I kind of, I always felt that do we have a general? I mean, you can answer those questions, but to your point about what is actually going on it seems to be much more dynamic so at least diaries and monitoring how people think and feel closer to when it's happening and trying to actually deliberately look for fluctuations in that and give you more opportunities to try and get at some of some of that complexity yeah, of it. yeah. i mean uh, um i mean certainly generalizations start the journey so to speak because you need you need to start somewhere um and you know maybe that's a good way to start um a new thing but but we've still got old things that haven't been solved anyway you know this whole thing about i mean it's quite fascinating that that you started with stress and you know yeah. you're still continuing with stress and yet we you know we we still have that narrative that that a lot of stress causes a lot of physical ailment um i mean why hasn't that sort of translated um into the reality that you know there is no strong empirical evidence for that um, 
I think it's because, I guess, again, it is cultural to some extent, but I think because intuitively, I guess if you're, for example, experiencing a lot of anxiety it, and that's having a lot of physiological effects, I think intuitively, in terms of attributing any illness you subsequently might get to that sensation, it's kind of the nearest, it's the nearest thing you've got. So um, I think where ideas like stress or anxiety or depression and health do make more sense is probably in the work of people and many people, including Michael Marmot, looking at things like socioeconomic status. So again, it's sort of interesting in, in organisational psychology and management in the 60s and 70s, there's much talk of executive stress. So the idea was the people at the top who, who were really suffering with this thing called stress because there are so many, so much pressure and so many demands and you're getting stomach ulcers. And we all know the way stomach ulcers, the idea that's linked to stress went. But uh, it's the idea that people at the top are sort of making these very difficult things. In fact, of course, it, it seems to be the case. It's actually people lower down. It's a lot to do with status. So I think when we get ill, when people maybe die sooner than they should, we think they should, we look for explanations. And I think it's probably, again, in some cultures, it's easier to favour, I guess, more individualistic explanations or it's because I was so stressed because it's happening rather than structural explanations about, well, it's because there's massive wealth inequalities and that's actually one of the major causes of a lot of these conditions and diseases and you know early death and all the rest of that. That's pretty hard to build into a story that's acceptable, I guess. Whereas individual level stuff is kind of makes more sense. And some some extent it's also blaming individuals. And certainly still see this, I think, in the workplace now, uh, where people talk about wellness at work or well-being at work. So it's sort of flipped, I guess, from stress in the 70s, 80s, 90s, since around the early 2000s to more positive psychology and positive well-being, positive health. But what all of it tends to do is focus, focus on and blame the individual. So if you're not happy at work, it's because you're not doing something right. You know, your cognitions aren't quite right, or you need to be more proactive, or you need, you need to do things about it. Or if you're unhappy at work, it's because you need to do something about it, something you're doing wrong. And I think, again, it probably suits, without getting to whatever, some political agendas to sort of see it as an individualised issue, happiness and distress, I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, I mean, this is where the cultural aspect comes in. I mean, coming from an Eastern culture, mm. um, you know, if you don't pull up your socks, it's your fault. So so that certainly talks to my uh, way of thinking, uh, which is a cultural way of thinking, um, that if you're stressed, it's your fault rather than, um, you know, a much more larger organisational or yeah. um, systemic, um, you know, top-down uh, uh um structure um but yeah i mean you know culture is such a well it's very complicated and it's very old uh mm. and our you know current modern mechanisms you know doesn't have the language to explain these things uh empirically unless you have objections to that no i yeah i think i think it's uh i, I to me, it's, so as speaking of psychologists, I think things like culture are quite hard to investigate using the kind of methods we would normally. You probably need to go to anthropologists, or sociologists, or historians, yeah. political scientists to get that kind of understanding, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and um, in terms of the PhD, what was your kind of 
take her message from that? You know, what did you sort of realize? Well, well, there wasn't a single one. Was that using <laughs> too many? Too many. Well, one was using these diary quantitative diary methods, um, where you get lots of data from individual, you know, group of individuals over maybe two weeks or, or a month. Uh, one thing is you start to realize that the typical way, certainly get in my field, the way you do research is you give out lots of surveys and questionnaires, typically at one point in time, you do correlations, regressions, and things like that. Now you can kind of do that with questionnaire data by collapsing it, <coughs> treating each day, each person as a case, as it were, but you lose a lot of the dynamics of that. And if you start to look at the dynamics, one thing that's quite interesting, one take home message from me, I suppose, if you looked at some of the, uh, for example, within person correlations, so to, to, to keep it simple, for each person you could correlate for them, maybe over three weeks, the correlation between say how much workload they reported, so how hard did you work today, and how much say, anxiety they felt. So you correlate it on an individual basis. And what quite surprised me was those in, those in within person correlations varied, varied enormously from you know quite positive and high, so you know 0.8, the more workload I report, the more anxious I am. A lot of people, there was no correlation. Some people's actually negative correlation. The more workload I report, the less anxious I am. And so that was sort of quite instructive to think about. We often, we often, the way we go about doing research is this kind of between person kind of analysis. And what we're missing out is a lot of the, the individual differences that are quite, I guess, nuanced and dynamic and happy to individuals and possibly almost telling you that in a sense, in some senses, people's worlds are quite different. So yes, of course, each of us react in pretty similar ways to some kinds of things, sure. But also, we, each of us possibly acts very differently to different things, possibly even on different days at different points of the day, but we, we tend to iron out or remove that as noise and stuff that's making it harder to find straightforward relationships. But I think to me, that was one of the the main things though, and the other one of the other main things on it is that going back to the period in which I did my PhD, is the amount of time people spent using a computer every day seems to have no effect whatsoever on their daily mood or symptoms or anything. So at least in that those several studies of a PhD didn't didn't really seem to make much difference. But I guess it gives you some again some clues that you're looking at, as you were saying before, we're looking trying to find a relationship between how many hours does someone's report they spend using this equipment and how do they feel at the end of the day there's lots of other things going on so there may be some kind of link but controlling everything else is difficult and in the end you may not see much of a relationship in general across all these people yeah yeah so there's you know quite a lot of redundancy there mm. by the sounds of it um i mean does it need a different sort of science or a different language of of looking at these things i mean philosophy is one thing yeah i mean do you, do you sort of look back and think oh, well maybe i should have looked at it in a in a, yeah. in a different light i think yeah i think one of the challenges is this and it's the thing i, I and others wrestle with a lot this idea of methodological fit so the idea is a good piece of research you'll have a, a clearly formulated question uh, and your methodology will fit with the question such that if you use that method, you collect those data, you'll be able to answer that question. This is the kind of ideal. And of course, that doesn't happen, as far as I can see, as much as it ideally should. And what 
people seem to do is they have a method, they have a tool, they have a way of collecting data, and they define the questions in relation to that particular tool they have. So if you have a survey method, because it's relative to give, a, give out surveys in organizations, you measure things like attitudes. Do attitudes matter? Kind of, maybe. What is an attitude? Bit unclear. Okay, but we can measure it. So then we formulate our questions in relation to the things we think we can measure using that particular method. So for example, a persistent question in, say, my field is, is there a relationship between job satisfaction and job performance? Why do we ask that? Because we think we can measure job satisfaction fairly easily. We think we can measure job performance fairly easily. So we keep asking that question. Is it a very good question? Probably not, but it, it seems to make sense. And I think in many areas of, of research and science and investigation, the, the, question, the questions that we ask are the questions we think we can answer using the tools we've got. It doesn't mean they're particularly good questions. So you get this, and the same is true through things like statistical techniques. I've observed so that people will ask questions that they can answer using particular statistical techniques, not because it's a good question to ask. So going back to the philosophical roots of this, for me now, well not now, it always has, but I think one of the key things is this, uh, not necessarily can you answer this question, but is it actually a reasonable, good, interesting, important question in some way that in principle you could try and answer. Now you may not have the method now, you may not have the resource to do it now, but the point is, is, is it a good question? There's always this tension between the questions you can answer using the resource you've got and the questions that are important. And certainly my sense is it's flipped a lot to the questions that it's possible to answer rather than the questions you can. So for example, just an example, people are very, uh, and again, this is fine in some context, but they're very interested, it seems to me, and rewarded for getting more and more and more data. So doing more and more and more and more empirical studies as though that is the only way to kind of advance our understanding of things. And again, in my field, there's a sense in which they're pretty much similar studies. They weren't very good to begin with. They're not, whatever they find, they're not going to be adding, each individual study is not going to be adding much to understanding of anything, but it's answerable, it's doable, it helps scientists' careers people feel they're doing stuff. And in fact, the more important thing would be to maybe stand back and say, what do we already know about this? Let's stop collecting new data. Let's think about the questions we think are important and start from that, which doesn't seem to happen very often, I think. I mean, are there people out there who are questioning the methodologies and, 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 and asking sure. more profound yeah, questions? Yeah, there are. Uh, they're asking more profound questions and they're also saying we should maybe stop doing this. So even something in a way it's a small thing, in a way it's a really big thing, statistical significance. So, so broadly speaking, statistical significance, and I'm going to generalize here, but it, it's not very important. And nonetheless, in many fields, it's seen as the thing you have to kind of get. And people have been banging on about this for at least 40 or 50 years, saying we shouldn't rely on this. Maybe we can use it a bit, but it's not the most important thing. Things like practical significance or effect size or other kinds of things we should really be focusing on. But yet, in, in, in my field, you know, the journals are still full of quantitative stuff which use statistical significance. So yes, there are people trying to think about doing it differently, but I think there are huge pressures within academia and within the university system to, I guess, I guess the question is, what are the incentives? So each 
each of us has some different professions and different contexts has incentives. Do these things and you will get promoted. Do these things and it will be seen as good. And that applies whether you're a manager or an academic or whatever you're doing, this is seen as what's good. And then, not surprisingly, people then think, okay, I'll do those things because I want to get on. I want to get promoted. I want to get a new job. I want to feel I'm successful. You're telling me this is what being successful is. Therefore, I'll do these things. So you have it, that sense of doing stuff becomes more important than is the stuff you're doing important, valuable, useful or anything else, just a sense of doing stuff. I was reminded of this very recently to use a very recent and <clears throat> parochial example of um, Liz Truss, the new Prime Minister of the UK, was recently, a couple of days ago, talking about the idea she was going to deliver, deliver, deliver. And, and she's not, you know, she's not alone. Many politicians and many managers um, deliver. Many researchers deliver. We deliver, we deliver. And that's seen as great. I'm more interested, I suppose, in saying, well, that is not in itself great. Why, why is that thing you've delivered any good? Is it going to help? Is it valuable? Is it better than delivering something else? Is it better than not delivering anything at all? But we kind of value certain kinds of action uh, around producing what we see as outcomes or, or products or something. And so that is the thing that's important. We should do more of that thing. And then we'll know you're working hard, you're doing a good job. Of course, it doesn't mean that at all, but there's that sense in which, and it's part of the reason why I got interested in evidence-based practice, because what I saw is, is people doing a lot of stuff, things that were delivering, and I was always wondering, well, what, what's the point in delivering this thing? What, what have we achieved? What have we done? Yes, you've delivered it. You've rolled this thing out. You've, you've brought about this organizational change. You've, yes, you've put a thousand people through a training program, whatever it is, but so what? And it seems to be people much more, and still are much more interested in the doing stuff than actually what it means. I think it is kind of, it's easier in some senses to do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, dealing with the difficult questions and, and, and also the, um, the delusional situations that you find yourself in, given that you're doing all this stuff and getting nowhere is quite, quite demoralizing and, and, and uh, yeah it's uh it's not it's not very human you know <laughs> we're sort of going backwards is not a very human thing yeah and, and I but think, we do it all the time yeah we do do it all the time not and you know not in in lots of fields and lots of areas um uh, and i think it's one of the things that can lead people for example to experience what you might call burnout or to feel what they're doing is not important anymore because maybe they've spent uh their, their career or lost their career in doing stuff and on reflection, sometimes that reflection takes a while, they become less and less convinced of its value, I guess. Uh, whether that's, so for me, whether that's publishing papers or whether it's teaching students or whether it's whatever it happens to be in your area of work, it's not that it has no value, it's just that it, it's like the amount of effort put in and the focus on the stuff, the stuff you do, would that effort and focus be better on other things? That maybe would have had more value, and they're the kind of questions that don't often don't get asked so much. I think. Yeah. Are, are there any kind of indicators or any kind of uh, flashing lights that go off that you can detect and say, "Oh, oh actually, I'm sort of going into self-delusional modes." For me personally, 
Yeah, in your experience, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, th <laughs> I think if I'm getting particularly excited about something, either positively or getting very annoyed about something, and now see that as a bit of a flashing light. Like why? <laughs> why am I getting so? Why, why is that really? Why don't I like that? Or if I find myself going back to confirmation bias, if I find myself googling things, I might read an article and think, oh, I can't believe they got that result. And I find myself googling on Google Scholar to try and find papers that found something opposite. Whoa! What are you doing? You know what? Is, what is? So you don't like the finding of this paper. You don't like that opinion. Uh, so now you're motivated to try and find, you know, that, and that's a kind of mm. bit of a signal. Or, or similarly, I think if, yeah, I really like the idea of saying, wait a minute, what, that's, that's okay. It's okay to like it. Uh, that's fine. But what's that going to do to the way I'm going to search for information? It's quite interesting within, within science. I know this is not quite fair, but it seems to me it's sort of interesting when you read in scientific articles or hear scientists say, They'd run an experiment, they did a study, and they were disappointed with the results. And you're thinking, okay, why, why, you shouldn't be disappointed with the results. You should be pleased with the results because you did, if it was a good study, whatever the results, you should be pleased because now you found something out you didn't know before. Why are you disappointed? And that's yeah. not, not quite, quite fair, but there is that sense in which we want things to be so in a particular way. And again, we sort of are disappointed when they're not, or we get excited when they are, or we look for information to confirm. So personally for me, that that sense of thinking, oh, I really love that, or I really hate that sort of irritates me. There's, yeah. there's some so, sort of signal. So it's the kind of sort of extremes of, of, um, of, of being that can actually uh, set off those uh, alarm bells or... Right. Yeah, sort of. And I think in, in some of my work on evidence-based practice, say management or HR or even organizational psychology, uh, sort of working with practitioners and looking at some of the stuff, the, the products and services that they might buy, as say an HR professional into their organization. And if you go to an HR practitioner conference, there's a lot of excitement, you know, a lot of love for stuff, for stuff you can do. Isn't it amazing? Martin? I keep thinking... I always think this is the wrong. It's all not. The, it's not a very useful state to be in for trying to make decisions that could affect people's lives and organization. Organization that you love something, or that you think something's horrible. I mean, that's fine if you're choosing what to have for dinner, or you're trying to buy a new shirt. That's a perfect. You know, I don't like that. Fine, that's good. That's a good way of choosing a shirt, but it's not a good way of choosing a training program or a good way of choosing an intervention or a good way of, but it, it's almost as though, how do you put it? There is a sense in which sometimes I think to be effective in terms of an evidence-based way to go back to the beginning, to use information, there is actually something quite boring about it. And it should be a bit boring. Um, because if it's not a bit boring, it means you're getting really swayed by other things you like or don't like. Now, of course, values are absolutely part of evidence-based practice, but in terms of looking for the evidence and information to help you make decisions, thinking you like or don't like things is not particularly useful.
it's useful for, for many other things but in that scenario it's not particularly yeah i mean it's difficult it's a it's it's a bit like the sort of chicken and egg argument and but you've got to start somewhere and you know either you start with the boring stuff or the or the exciting stuff the start is important i think yeah 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 and i think and i think certainly in terms of detecting thinking about questions or problems or opportunities or things say for example go back to a manager or organization might think is important certainly the the affective parts of that the emotional parts that are very important because what what one of the things that tells us what's important is what matters to us so what doesn't matter to us or what actually yeah matters to us positive and in that sense that is a very important starting point and focus but from that not quite that point onwards but then for other parts of this process yeah it's, it's not always so useful i think yeah yeah and 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 so if if you go back to your phd you finish your mm. phd yeah um I guess some insights there. How yeah. how, how how did that translate into? Um, did did you go straight into industry or did you go into? No, academia? I went straight to Birkbeck College, where I had a uh, a whole new experience in a way, which was suddenly to uh, well still is, but Birkbeck, part of the University of London, is mostly a part time mature student place. So I went from doing a PhD. Well, I already did quite a lot of teaching with relatively younger master students to go into a place that had mostly quite mature part-time students or part-time. So I found myself at the age of 30 teaching groups of people who average age was probably 45 and had loads of work experience that I didn't have. And it, it's maybe I'm being rosy tinted glasses about this, but you know, it's probably the best experiences professionally in terms of learning I've ever had. Because suddenly I was coming from this very academic PhD, very sciencey sort of approach to people who were there absolutely to learn, but actually bringing a lot of experience and were saying things like, well, this doesn't make any sense to me. And I was initially as much, sure it only makes sense to you, but here's the science. <laughs> I think that was my approach for a little while uh, and if but in fact working and teaching those students really i guess got me interested quite a lot in the idea that scientific knowledge has its obviously has its value but in terms of practice and doing stuff you need other kinds of evidence as well so in fact they were very helpful with that they were very yeah it's very insightful so this sort of sense of resisting them telling me they thought some of this academic stuff was rubbish feeling quite defensive so saying well actually yeah you're probably right some of it is kind of rubbish even though it's published in the top journals by the top researchers i can kind of see what you mean now yeah it's not actually very helpful so that sense i was a great yeah really useful uh experience and i think if i hadn't had that i think i still would have probably seeing science or scientific evidence as the only almost the only evidence you need yeah. to deal with things what 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 gave you that change of 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 thinking i mean i was going to say change of heart but it was sort of more more cognitive it was hard it was hard too because it was it was hard also give, it was giving something up it was giving up a sort of uh you know isn't science great sort of thing i suppose um i think it's 
I think when I was consistent, so a lot of the students at Birkbeck, well, when I was there, were very, you know, they were very, you know, of course they were, they were very, very smart. And they understood this stuff. So they weren't just poo-pooing it. And I guess if people really understand it and they keep coming back to you with the same things, mm. telling you it doesn't make sense, it's not relevant, it doesn't apply in their organisation. I guess, you know, after probably 20, 30, 40, 50 times, even I would say, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> the change of heart or the change of thinking was like, yeah, they've, they've actually got a really good point here. You know, so, yeah, I think it was probably the persistence of it. And I think also around that time, I got quite interested in the way academics and scientists themselves were also, if you like, not always particularly transparent in the way they describe their own results, their own findings. And so although I was teaching in a classroom saying, here's the science, everyone, apart from what the students were saying, I was becoming more skeptical about the science. I've always been fairly skeptical, more skeptical for reasons such as statistical significance testing, or the fact that, you know, researchers tend to not publish null results. So people do studies, they tend to have a file draw problem, they only publish positive results. So I got quite interested in that and saying, well, actually, I can't, you know, apart from what the students are telling me, I actually find it increasingly hard to trust this stuff I used to think was quite solid. The idea of settled science, the idea of solid and it's, and it's you know, there's a meta-analysis out there there's 300 studies, this probably is the effect. I'm thinking, is it, but is it, you know, wondering about that. So it's probably that sort of made me reflect on that. I think also probably what changed my heart was thinking about evidence-based practice. I tended to be talking to managers and psychologists and saying, you are not being very evidence-based. Look at you, you're, you're implementing this stuff, you're doing this thing, you're not using the science, you're not using evidence, you're not using critical thinking. And I was thinking, wait a minute, that's exactly what scientists are doing too. So that we're doing the same sort of thing. As I mentioned, managers might get rewarded for doing stuff. Academics might get rewarded for doing more and more papers. It's stuff. How much do these things matter? Well, they're not looking at that so much. It's a judgment by their peers. Exactly the same true in an organization often as well. So in that sense, I thought, well, actually where, or I'm not, we are not so different from them. So it's partly why this idea of the academic practitioner divide, I don't like, because I think we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat, I guess, of thinking or wanting on some level to do what's important and what's more likely to work, but where that's not always very easy. And but what stops us from doing it are actually quite similar things. So we're all in a similar position. We're not antagonistic. Yeah, and, and 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 was there any sort of blowback or sort of um, uh, uh, damages that sort of happened to you, given that you had that realization that science doesn't have all the answers? And yeah, so <clears throat> I'll, I'll give there's a, there's a few anecdotes, and I will tell them which in a way that won't reveal the people involved. Not that they're actually working in this field anymore. One was many many years ago. I went to a House of Commons committee, scientific committee thing, and there's someone very well known in the field of stress, uh, stress at work, and they were talking about stress, stress at work, what it did, stress interventions, and they were being very uh, certain. 
and very overly clear and not very nuanced, saying we know what the problem is, we know what the solution is, we just have to do it. And I was kind of sort of trying to ask Chris, well, is it really, you know, is it really that clear? Does it happened to be a field I knew something about. And at the end, one of the people who'd been speaking came up to me and said something like, oh, you know, you're not wrong, Rob, you know, criticisms, they're, they're quite reasonable. But then this person pointed to the people in the room who were kind of MPs and civil servants. He said, you're right, but we can't tell them that. Mm -hmm. We can't tell them that. I was going, why not? He said, because, you know, we need funding. We need to do, do this work. And I was thinking, but if we don't know what the problem is and these solutions don't seem to work, why, why, why do we want more funding? Why do we want, so there's really, that, that was a little insight. And yes, yeah, so that's a little bit of blowback. And also I think sometimes with, you know, academic colleagues, that's I mean my current institution, just in general, many of them, I suppose, quite reasonably are into doing their academic things. So a constant debate in management research, human resource management research, constant debate is business schools, academics, they're doing this research, but it's not relevant to practice. Oh dear, oh dear, what should we do? It's not relevant to practice. Practitioners don't read our stuff. Practitioners are not interested in our research. Oh dear, isn't it terrible? Constant refrain for at least 30 or 40 years. And I think a lot of my colleagues are aware of that, but at the same time, they just want to get on with doing their research. And some of them see, I guess, that niggle of how is this relevant? How is this helpful? How is it useful? It's sort of quite irritating because they just want to get on with their stuff, publish their stuff. Uh, so how did it blow back? Yeah, I think I've had colleagues from time to time who I feel are saying to me one way or another, just, just you know, you just leave us alone. You've got a point. You've made your point. Yeah, we want to get on with our stuff now. So yes, it'd be nice if I had to practice, but you know what? I just need to get this next journal article out. So that's what's important to me. And I hope one day it links to practice, but that's not my, and they're right in a way, it's not their responsibility. They're right in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's for people like yourselves to sort of make it relevant, I guess, and, and sort of bring the two worlds together and yeah, um, make, make it into one coherent um, uh, knowledge base, I guess. Well, that, well, that's really tricky because the question is always, and it varies across fields, but certainly in my field, the question is whose job is that? Mm. So academics and business schools don't really think it's their job mm. to bring those worlds together. If you speak to practitioners or professional bodies, they don't really think it's their job, or individual practitioners don't. Individual practitioners saying, how do you expect me to read this incomprehensible academic papers? How do you, I haven't got the time. Academics going, but I'm paid to produce these. So where who are the where are the intermediaries? And I think in some fields it happens, but not but not particularly well in my fields. I think and I think it might change. I think there's some indications it might be changing. But can you give examples of that of of, of these intermediaries that yeah. um, bring them together? Yeah. So one one kind of intermediary, I suppose, is a centre for evidence based management, which we started about over ten years ago. And one of the things we do there is to conduct systematic reviews of management studies. So if you go, if you look for Center for Evidence-Based Management, you'll find quite a lot of these available online, where we take questions that practitioners or managers or organizations might have, and then we do a systematic review of the scientific literature around it 
to come up with some answers to those practice questions as the best of Adel Evans. Sometimes, as you know, there's a lot, sometimes there's not much, sometimes really high quality, sometimes the answer's fairly clear, often it's very equivocal, but we try and produce it. So that's one example of an intermediary. There are a couple of consultancies around that try and do it as well, uh, that try and, I guess, bring together these different forms of knowledge, um, but there aren't many yet. Um, certainly some people suggested there needs to be for example, a publication, online publication, something that, that tries to do this as well. So if you're kind of, uh, I guess, a, a manager who um, is quite curious about research and thinking and evidence and data, the places you'll go now are probably places like Harvard Business Review because it's accessible, it's pretty well written, but it also suffers from being fairly questionable in terms of the accuracy of the way in which it presents ideas and data and evidence. So it's a bit more like edutainment than actually providing people with good kind of evidence about what's going on in terms of the best available scientific evidence. So that's an example to me of not a very good intermediary, but there are a few that I think are better, yeah. And, 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 and in terms of sort of uh, the future for yourself, you know, what kind of um, environment do you see yourself um engaging in mm. so i'm an academic uh, and i teach students who mostly are not mature students like birthday students so one thing i want to try and do at queen mary now is to try and start more executive education courses so at least i'm working with with students who are actually in jobs and working and are trying to actually do stuff to see how if you like the knowledge and skills I might have as an act of research and academic might help them with their work uh, rather than the traditional thing is here's here's the research throw it over the wall get on with it so not doing that but actually working with people I also do training courses with organizations around evidence-based management evidence-based HR which I'd like to do more of at some point because um, I think that it feels like I'm making I guess more use of my abilities I think teaching in a very academic way to bunches of students with very little work experience, particularly in areas like management, organizational psychology, it's quite tricky. I think you can make it interesting, you can make it entertaining, but when the main forms of assessment are things like exams and essays, I don't know, for me, I don't know how useful that is for them practically. So I'd much prefer to do more work, I guess, with people who feel can use some of the stuff that, that we might be able to bring. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, it's been um, conversations gone really quickly, and it's sort of coming to the hour already. And and, and um, um, sort of the last question, which I sort mm. of you know, I ask all of my uh, uh, guests. Um, what are the three things you would advise the um, uh, sixteen or eighteen year old Rob, um, going through his um sort of quasi-Marxist sort of experience, yeah. uh, uh, um, you know, about to go into philosophy and, mm. and, and psychology. Uh, and given you, you've experienced, uh, you know, 100 years of your life so far, what what are the, your, your three top tips to him? Well, I think, I think I would say, and I did it a bit, but probably not enough. I think I would, so for example, I did, I started doing A-levels in subjects which I just didn't really like 
and, and did quite badly and then I changed A levels and did, did different kinds of A levels and actually did better. So I think the, the I think the first thing I would have said is is try and try do, work try and work out what interests or excites you, what's going to grab your attention. Because I think I really I've always found it very difficult to just apply myself and learn things I'm not very interested in. I can do it a bit, but I find it quite sort of soul destroying. And I think I didn't. I didn't value that when I was young. It's like, no, you must do, you must work, do the thing, do the work, you know, do the revision. I think I say, no, don't do that. And the other thing I would say is probably is because I was quite focused on going to university, just because a lot, you know, a lot of my mates did. I think I'd think, I would have said to myself, well, why are you going to do that? Or why are you going to do that now? And I would have sort of had a good talk to myself about, are there some other things you might want to do? before or instead or what why is that the only game in town because it felt like it really was the only game in town at that point and there are two things what's the third thing i don't know if i can think of a third thing probably just those two things like don't don't force yourself to do things which probably there must be a third thing i know there has to there. be three isn't there? <laughs> yeah the third thing I say to myself is work on having better skills and thinking of lists of three things. I think. Yeah. <laughs> List of three things for for yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Wonderful. How 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 can people get hold of you, Rob? What's the best way? So I've got a fairly unusual name, I guess. So if you just Google me, you can get my web page. Uh, I've got personal web page. I've got Queen Mary web page. But also, I'm reasonably active on things like Twitter and LinkedIn. So if you yeah. look for me on Twitter and LinkedIn, you'll find me there. Trump being uh, sort of, you know, somewhat sceptical, not cynical, but sceptical, <laughs> both academic and practitioner sort of stuff. And most of what I try and do in those posts is to create, I hope, to try and create discussion, because yeah. that's something I enjoy most, is when different people are chipping into a conversation, not too much trying to take sides as such, but trying to understand questions issues data what things might mean so yeah so yes join the conversation as they say wonderful wonderful thank you so much rob it's been a pleasure you're very welcome Ida.